Welcome to the Monday edition of Couch Potato Diary, coming to you from the Clearwater Cleaning Solutions Broadcasting Studio. Clearwater Cleaning Solutions is a leading locally owned cleaning company in Calgary. They have a team of professional and insured sanitizing experts ready to tackle any commercial or residential cleaning job with 100% satisfaction guaranteed. Big thank you to Clearwater Cleaning Solutions for getting on board with the podcast. I'm very excited about this and very excited about this episode today. If you have any thoughts, send them my way on social media, Twitter and Instagram. I am at primetimecline, twitch.tv slash primetimepk, and you can email the show couchpotatodiary at yahoo.com. Also, shout out to Wasted Talent for the music today. A lot to get to. A busy weekend. A champion crowned this weekend, and the crown is staying right where it's been for the last two years. We got some great cup, we got some NFL, real good weekend for us in the National Football League, uh, and a fun NFL segment I want to do before we close things out with some face punching. But we start today in the Canadian Football League. The Grey Cup is now behind us. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers win a classic in overtime, uh, they get the two-point conversion, and then they get the interception to put a bow on a championship win, and a great win for Winnipeg, 33-25, the final. There are a number of different ways to attack this one. First of all, just analyzing the game, a very well-played football game. I, I Early on, I thought both defenses played really, really well. And I thought you also saw, I thought you saw the offenses kind of step up in the second half. And I think that that's where I want to start with the offenses. And I want to start with Zach Caleros because he is someone for a bit that when they referenced, oh yeah, and in the 2014 Grey Cup that Hamilton played in, it's like, oh right, this dude has been around for a minute. And there was... There was some talk, at least I kind of believed, um, uh, around the time that he was starting to make his progression, that this was a guy who could end up being the best quarterback in the CFL. And now I think when you look around, the guy wins the MOP. He is your Grey Cup MVP. He is now a two-time Grey Cup champion. He has now reached that part. And it looked for a bit like it was going to be a little bit dicey, but... When he is on, he is better than everyone. And he was on in the back part of this great cup, and he has now finally reached that potential for him that I think we all saw when he was starting to make his come up and bounced around a few teams. But now it really is the the start of something great, uh, I think, for him with Winnipeg. That there's always going to be some injury concerns, and there's always going to be a little bit of inconsistency. But that benchmark that we thought he was going to be able to get to, he has now finally been able to reach. And it's a, a real cool story, and you feel really happy for him after all of this time working away. Uh, I think when you saw that the start of his career, it was, okay, this guy's going to win two great cups. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if we thought it would be back-to-back -back this late into the career, and he's still got a ways to go. I don't want to say he's old or washed up, like this isn't John Elway, but I do think that he, he is now making the resume look the way we all thought it was going to look, and there was a stretch there when it didn't look like that was going to be the case. When you look at the CFL landscape now, and you have to look at this Winnipeg Blue Bombers team, like I, I still don't view this run for Winnipeg like a, a Montreal or a Calgary because it is only a couple of seasons. But we are getting into that kind of dynastic territory. If they can win another one, then we're talking about dynasties here, right? 
And for the rest of the CFL, I, I don't know what the the key is to beating this Winnipeg team or, or how you get better than them. There's going to be free agency. They're not going to be able to keep everyone. They're probably not going to go the, the Tampa Bay route. But quarterback, we just talked about. They got that set. Running back, I think they're pretty good. Wide receiver, they are deep. They are talented. They are big. They can beat you. That offensive line sent four guys to the All-Star game. That's or If there was an All-Star game, sent four guys to the All-Star team. Sorry. Uh, but they are obviously extremely good defensive side of the ball, best pass rush in the league. And in the secondary, not their best game, but they come away with the interception that ends up sealing a great cup. There are really no glaring holes on this Winnipeg team. Now there's going to be a couple of shots to that, I'm sure, as we head into the offseason now, but Winnipeg, make no mistake about it, are the standard bearers in the CFL right now, and everyone's trying to catch up as this is a fantastically built football team. I think we are now going to start to see, can they build up that depth that helped Calgary stick around at the top for so long? On the opposite side, on the Hamilton side, this has to be heartbreaking. They've now lost four of the last eight Grey Cups and have not won a Grey Cup championship since the calendar flipped over to the year 2000. And there have been some very lean years in there for Hamilton, but this has been a great stretch of football for the Ticats. I, I think they have one of the best coaches in the league in Orlando Steinauer. I, I think they have an interesting quarterback situation to, to look at now as we go into the offseason, because we were talking about it on the, the podcast on Friday, or maybe I think it was Wednesday. Where does Jeremiah Masoli go? That was that was my thought because okay, they've they've settled on Dane Evans. You probably can't keep both of these guys. So, let's go with let's go with Evans and maybe you Masoli goes on to a, a BC or an Ottawa. But now, when you see how key having both those guys were and from all accounts both those guys work so well together. That was at least all the talk going into the season. Will that be that way forever? We'll see. If they can coexist and if you can manage that salary cap wise, then obviously keeping both guys is great to be able to have that depth. But if they didn't have that, if they went the Toronto route and moved the backup quarterback out for a couple of draft picks, then that game turns into an ass kicking real quick with whoever the third stringer would have been behind Dane Evans. But Jeremiah Masoli shows up and I think kind of gets back some of the narrative that he had lost coming out of that East final. I thought he played very well. Um, I don't think like that interception, you're obviously forcing things a little bit on, on second and long. And it ends up coming back to bite them. But I thought he played very well. The reason he was in second and long is one of the, I think, real keys to this game. Because like I said, both teams played exceptionally well. I thought this was, again, an extremely well-played football game. The difference was there was just a couple key mistakes on the Hamilton side. Not massive ones. They end up, in totality, end up being pretty big. But just a couple small mistakes that I think ends up hurting Hamilton. Um, as I, I flip through my notes here. Um, the third quarter. Hamilton has the ball with the wind in the third quarter. And again, we, we talked about it with Buffalo against New England. You have to kind of coach things a little bit differently. And I do want to say that third quarter ends up being a win for Hamilton. So it's weird to kind of criticize things a little bit. But... You look at how they went about things with the win to start that third quarter. Coming out of the break, you go Jackson for four yards. Play action, Masoli runs it and he gets stopped. So you have to kick the ball away. Winnipeg marches down, kicks a field goal to tie the game. Hamilton gets the ball back and then it is a run up the middle that gets stuffed. 
and Masoli gets shut down on third down. And so you get the wind, this major advantage in this football game, and your first two possessions are two and outs. Now, again, you bounce back because you get uh, an interception that leads to a touchdown, and then you get another interception. You don't come away with any points on that, but then you end up getting a safety and are able to set yourself up for the field goal that puts you up by 12. So it's not a completely lost quarter for Hamilton, but I thought there was a real opportunity there to put some distance between yourself and Winnipeg with the wind, and it was just a lot of short stuff that ended up really hurting them. There was that urgency. I thought the timeout late in the third quarter was a really smart move by Steinauer, but I just thought there was a little bit on offense. They could have done more to take advantage with the wind of their back at their third quarter, and I thought that that really did that really did limit them as this game went along. Obviously, the, the single point on the kickoff got a lot of debate on the broadcast. It got a lot of frustration. I find it hilarious just how, and look, we, who knows how that one went down, but it's just, it's funny how sometimes, oh, the kick went into the end zone. That's terrible. You need better field position. And then sometimes the kick goes into the end zone. It's, oh, this is brilliant. Um, and I get there's nuance and everything in sports, but it's, that was a backbreaker for Hamilton to then only be able to get the to, to get the field goal to tie the game to send it to overtime instead of winning it. And it's just it's those those little mistakes that add up in a football game, especially a game that was that close. And two teams that were so evenly matched, you can't really afford to have one of those mistakes tilt things even just a little bit in the other team's favor. And the last one, the penalties in the uh, overtime period for the Hamilton Tiger Cats, I thought really cost them in this. I, I think that was kind of the key. When you go back and look at them, first one, Winnipeg has the ball to start overtime. You get just a bad offside penalty, just a little bit too excited, trying to jump the gun. You fall off balance and it goes from second and seven down to second and short. Andrew Harris runs it up the middle. A few plays later, the ball is in your end zone. And then on what looks like a pretty good running play, and who knows if you're able to get that off with the um, without the penalty, but you take a holding call that sets you back now 10 yards, and now you're playing catch-up. And in the CFL, where you only have three downs to, to make hay, it's tough to fall behind the sticks 10 yards like that and then try to work your way back, especially in an overtime scenario where you know you need to come away with eight points. So it, it was just, it was the little mistakes for Hamilton that ends up costing them. And now when you look bigger picture for the Ticats, like we said, they've lost four of the last eight Grey Cups. They haven't won a championship since uh, winning the title back in 1999. But this is still, when we go into next season, probably going to be the team that we favor in the East Division. I think Montreal is on the come up. If Vernon Adams stays healthy, who knows what this East side of the playoff bracket looks like. But for now... Hamilton are the standard bearers in the East Division, but they have not been able to get over that hump. And when you look at this team, again, there isn't that glaring weakness that you need to go out and address. And the secondary, I thought the secondary played really, really well against Winnipeg in that great cup and played well for the last little bit. We talked about how dangerous that front seven was. They limited Andrew Harris, even no Ted Laurent. I thought they really did a good job of causing some problems for Winnipeg, both with the pass rush and in stopping the run. I, I don't think the defense is to blame at all for this. And then offensively, we talked about it. They have two guys who could start a quarterback in this league. 
whenever you have Don Jackson at running back, you're kind of always looking to improve on your running back position, but you're also very happy with what you got. I thought if Hamilton won that game, Jackson had a pretty good case for the MVP of that game. He, he, was, he was really, really good. And he was a player that I, I wasn't really sure what they were going to get. I think if you were to look at Hamilton and look at one extra piece that they need, aside from Brandon Banks, like Acklin is good, but I feel like they need another... I feel like they need another really good receiver. And I know I'm saying really good a lot, but I, I think they need a, another strong receiver that can take some of the pressure off of this team. I, I think that might be the way that you might look at things. Cause otherwise, again, this is a talented football team and I'm not making any changes with the coach. I think Orlando Steinauer is one of the best in the league. So this is, th this is the type of head scratching that you have to do when you are a team that has come so close so many times. I, I certainly don't think that this is a, well, blow it up and try it again. This isn't going to work. I, I definitely, think they are, that this could work in Hamilton it's just it's a tough one man it's it's really oh it's so tough if you're Hamilton when you just you are a quarter away you're up by 12 in the fourth quarter and just to see it slip away like that has to be that that's a very much a what especially when you're down at the four yard line with a chance to win that game and you get shut down on a couple of plays Shout out to Winnipeg, though. They played tremendous football. Adam Bighill was a force in that game. He is always a joy to watch. And this Winnipeg team was a joy to watch all season long. Credit them. And also, the Arkells absolutely crushing it in the halftime show. I, I thought that was one of the better halftime shows we've seen in a while. So kudos to the Arkells for getting that one done. On to the National Football League. Good week for the show as we go 10-3 and three on our picks going into Monday night. Our pick for the Monday nighter, Arizona minus 2.5 against the Rams. So let's run through these games um, as best as we can. Atlanta taking on Carolina. I had Carolina minus 135 and took the under at 42. Neither of those hit. So when you look at 10-3 and three to lose two in one game... I feel pretty good about that. This is like Atlanta's going to hang around in this playoff race because the AFC or the back of the NFC playoff picture is so bad. And for Carolina, this is a loss you just cannot afford to have happen. Cam Newton clearly isn't it. Who knows what this looks like with Sam Darnold, but this team clearly is not in the spot that we thought they were going to be. Baltimore, with no Lamar Jackson, comes back and gets a backdoor cover as they lose by two to Cleveland. This is a big win for Cleveland. It's an important win for Cleveland. And now, when we look at the AFC North standings, it is a little snug in um, what is generally a competitive division. But now you have four teams that are all battling for this top spot and all separated by a game and a half. Baltimore at eight and five, both Cleveland and Cincinnati at seven and six, Pittsburgh at six, six and one. It's funny. Pittsburgh is at 500 with a minus 50 point differential. Cincinnati one or half a game better at seven and six with a plus 61 point differential, but they've lost two in a row that this division is up for grabs and you never apologize for a win, especially when you get it in division. But if you are looking at this from a Cleveland Browns perspective, you're going into a game against the Raiders on Saturday afternoon. This isn't a win that you come away feeling great about. It's an important win, no question, but this isn't a watch out for Cleveland. Here they come. This is a, boy, that shouldn't have been as difficult as it was for Cleveland in that game. Dallas covers the four and a half as they beat up on the Washington football team. We've been saying for a bit, like, or we, we said definitely going into this week, Washington a little bit of fool's gold. Yes, they'd won four in a row. Yes, the defense was playing better, but they hadn't actually played anyone. They played a Dallas team, and it gets a little bit hairy at the end with uh, Washington making uh, a bit of a push late. That was more, I think, Dallas taking their foot off the gas, but that's still 
a concerning one for Dallas. Again, talking about wins you don't feel great coming away from, Dallas does not feel great coming away from this win. They are still in the driver's seat in that division, but now when you're looking at competing for top spot in the NFC, they're just, they're not there, right? Like they, they are at nine and four, which has them a game and a half back of Arizona for that top spot. But you have Tampa Bay and Green Bay, both at 10 and three ahead of them. It looks like they are locked into that spot. And now the Rams, if they lose this one, all of a sudden they're in danger of falling out of not like not of the playoffs. They're, they're not dropping below a Minnesota or a Philadelphia, um, Atlanta, New Orleans, those teams that are in the, the mix there. But the difference between playing the Cowboys and playing the Bucks in the first round of the playoffs is rather uh, substantial. So the, this is an important one for the Rams, but for the Cowboys, you're going to get that top wildcard team. You're going to get a home playoff date, but after that, it's going to be really tough sailing for Dallas in the playoffs unless they go on a run. Tennessee beats Jacksonville. Uh, all the stuff that's like Urban Meyer throwing his assistants under the bus for leaks to the media and stuff like that. Like this is... Just a disaster as the, this flaming garbage can approaches the end of the season. Just an absolute disaster of a year and a wasted year of Trevor Lawrence. We talk about New England. Like, look at the difference between New England, who gets the worst quarterback, and Jacksonville, who gets the, this franchise guy, and how differently those seasons have gone. This is... It doesn't even feel like a year of development for, for Trevor Lawrence. This feels like an absolute waste. And again, it just shows getting the franchise quarterback is a very important step. I would say the most important step, but it's not the only one. You need to surround him with a quality football organization, and Jacksonville has done none of that. Remember when we thought the Raiders had fixed things? That was that was a fun couple of weeks, hey? Uh, they get throttled by Kansas City, who easily covers minus 9.5, and, and the Chiefs are back. They are, I think, the clear best team in the AFC right now and the clear favorites to get back to the Super Bowl for a third year in a row. And when we look at the AFC playoff picture, currently Kansas City tied with Tennessee and tied with New England at nine and four. Uh, New England holds the tiebreaker over Kansas City and Tennessee based on win percentage in conference games. Um, and Tennessee holds the tiebreaker over Kansas City based on head-to-head uh, head -head win percentage. So Kansas City currently sitting in that third spot. If the playoffs were to start today, it'd be Tennessee-Buffalo in the first round, and then Kansas City against the Indianapolis Colts. You feel good about that Colts matchup, but again, this is where the messing around at the beginning part of the season might hurt Kansas City. If you have to go onto the road at, I guess it would... It, Again, in theory, you'd be on the road at Tennessee, then on the road at New England to try to get back to the Super Bowl. That is a tough road. So this next stretch here for Kansas City, I think, is really important if they want to move up in the standings and get that number one seed that I think right now they deserve. New Orleans beats up uh, New Orleans. Sorry, beats up on the New York Jets. It's a down year for the Jets. You're not seeing the positive signs you would hope for out of Zach Wilson, but th this upcoming offseason, very important for the Jets now as they try to build around a young quarterback. They have a couple of picks high in the draft. This is where you get weapons and really start to to utilize the young quarterback, but he has not, Zach Wilson has not looked like a, a top overall pick. And I was, again, a little skeptical of him coming into the draft. It just didn't see enough of him, but... 
it hasn't wowed me in the, the first year anyway. Seattle with a easy win over the Houston Texans, an easy cover of nine. And you look at it, Seattle, like they're they're hanging around. They are one game out of a playoff spot. Now they have to climb over Carolina, New Orleans, Atlanta, Philadelphia, Minnesota, and Washington to get into that spot based on a number of tiebreakers. But when we look at the Seattle schedule the rest of the way, they are at the Rams next week. That is difficult. Then you close the season, Bears and Lions, those are back-to-back wins, so we're sitting at 7-9, and nine. and then you got a matchup against Arizona, we'll see what that matchup means for Arizona going into the final week of the season, but th- this is a live chance at least for Seattle, but this is still not a good football team, and the th- I mean, the good thing for them is they are surrounded by not good playoff teams, but it just feels like they aren't good enough to dig out of this hole that they have built for themselves in the... Um, in the NFC playoff picture. Detroit falls to Denver by a lot. Denver, again, they're hanging around in the the playoff race. They are one of the teams tied with Indianapolis and Buffalo at 7-6 and six right now. We said it last week, um, or we said it going into this week, that Denver beats bad teams. That was a bad Detroit team that they beat, but their schedule to close the season, I mean... If they want to get in, they're playing the teams that they got to beat. They are playing the Bengals, the Raiders, the Chargers, and then at Kansas City. I would or a home against Kansas City. Sorry, I would imagine that Kansas City has something to play for in that final week of the season. So that this is going to be a difficult process for Denver. Honestly, if the Broncos didn't win another game this season, I would not be absolutely stunned. Although the Raiders certainly aren't playing like a team that would scare you right now. The Chargers get the job done against the Giants. This is what the Chargers should look like on a week-in, week-out basis. And to their credit, they have played a lot better coming out of their bye week. They are a team that I think should scare everyone in the AFC right now. Um, and for the Giants, I mean, it's it's blow-up time. Everything's going to change next year. Tampa Bay squeaks away with an overtime win, but it's a cover of minus 3.5 over the Buffalo Bills. Credit the Bills for making this a game, because there was going to be a lot of very negative talk around this Bills team coming out of this game. They gave their fans a little bit of hope, which is a backbreaker, but for for Buffalo, I, I do think that you at least still see some of the positives with this team, and you can see what you can do when you have Josh Allen playing at his best, because he is still one of the most talented quarterbacks in the league. But for Tampa Bay, there are things in the secondary that need to get figured out if we're going to take them very seriously. But again, you look at everyone else in the National Football League right now, and everyone has that, well, they need to get this figured out if we're going to take them seriously. Again, that is literally every team in the NFL right now. Uh, San Francisco beats Cincinnati. We had the Bengals on the money line. San Francisco comes away with the overtime win. I'm still not all the way there on Jimmy Garoppolo. He is another one where it has to be boom, boom, boom and out. Like just everything in the flow of the offense, everything moving. But then you look at the rest of this team, this is a good football team. And there were there were flashes of that against Cincinnati and little reminders of why we liked San Francisco so much coming into this season. I, I They are definitely going to be one of those teams when we get into January where they kind of get the publicity of, hey, this isn't a team you want to face in the playoffs. This is, this is going to be a tough out. I do think they are a playoff team and I do think they're going to be difficult to, to manage. One thing that you like to see is they're five and two on the road this year. Now, only two and four at home. That needs to be improved upon, but this is a team that's gone out and got the job done in hostile work environments. For Cincinnati, this is a loss you do feel good about. They they were able to battle back. Joe Burrow had all the signs that he is the, the guy that everyone thought he was going to be. And Jamar Chase, 
has a couple of issues, but he ends up coming up with a big game as well. They got the running back. This is a good football team. I think they're a year away from really threatening in the AFC, but if Cincinnati can continue this progression, this is a very good football team. And lastly, Chicago embarrasses themselves on national television again as they fall to Green Bay. The Packers are able to cover 12 and a half, and they look like one of the most complete teams in the National Football League. music that you hear on Couch Potato Diary is provided by Wasted Talent. Find them on Instagram at Wasted Talent with X's where the A's would be and find their producer on Instagram at Tommy Fresh Music. Closing things up today with some UFC talk. Uh, not as good of a week for the UFC picks, but what a weekend it was for the Ultimate Fighting Championship. In the main event, Charles Oliveira with a submission win over Dustin Poirier. We'll start with the winner, Charles de Bronx, as it just, he is so technically sound and so good everywhere. It is difficult to find a weakness in his game. And yet, I still... Like I, I look ahead at what appears to be next in a Justin Gaethje matchup, and I think, uh, eh, I might go Gaethje there. That, like that's that is where I am at on on Charles Oliveira. Like I, I just I find him incredibly talented and incredibly fun to watch. But then as I go into some of his matchups, I see someone who has more power potential than him, and I get a little bit concerned about it. But for Oliveira, that there is nothing in the sport he can't do. And again, to watch the development of this fighter back from again UFC Live, Jones against Matt Yushchenko, to this point. He was a guy who you always said, if he can put it together, he has a chance to at least fight for a championship. I didn't think he would be a win a title and then defend a title type of a champion. I thought he would be a kind of in the mix guy. Like, oh, okay, well, this guy's next. So that's a competitive fight for a champion. I didn't think he would get to be in that number one status, but th this has been an excellent run for him. And it's always fun to see fighters A, develop, but B, be able to put everything together. That is... Just a, a blast to watch uh, when you see a fighter able to, to do those sorts of things. For Poirier, this is really, really tough. And you, you feel just heartbroken for him as he discusses things post-fight. Where it's like, yeah, I could work my way back to a title shot. But it's, do I want to at this point? Because this was the best couple-year stretch of his career. The wins against Conor McGregor that get you into a, a, first of all, a different tax bracket. Second of all, a different stratosphere for recognition. And then third of all, it really does feel like he found, again, he was one of those fighters who put everything together and then it just falls apart at the end. That That is so, that has to be devastating for Dustin Poirier. And again, it's like, what, like you're not going to get to the level of Charles Oliveira grappling-wise, but I... I Still think this is one of the best fighters at 155 pounds on the planet right now. I think he'll come back. It, it would be interesting now if you were to do a fourth fight with Conor McGregor after how weird that one ended. If nothing else, it's another good payday for um, for Dustin Poirier. Does that win lock him into a title shot? Probably. I mean, maybe. Who knows? Like, if Conor gets a title shot next, it's embarrassing for the promotion, embarrassing for the sport. I think you do run it back with Poirier. Again, you can put that as a main event anywhere and then have the winner of that face the winner of an Oliveira and I would imagine Gaethje um, night. But for Poirier, it just, you're left shaking your head because everything was going in the right direction and it just ends up falling apart. 
In the co-main event, one of the greatest upsets in the history of the sport as Juliana Pena stuns Amanda Nunes with a victory to win the UFC's women's 135-pound championship. There are, first of all, on the winner, this is incredible for Juliana Pena. She believed it when no one else did. I almost made, well, not almost, I did make fun of her for how much she believed it on the UFC countdown special leading into the show on Saturday night, and she was able to get the job done. And for me, when I look at these fights, and it's something I need to remind myself a lot, just because a fighter has advantages in those spots, in different spots, whether it be in the stand-up, in the clinch, on the or on the ground, um... Just because there's an advantage there doesn't mean it nullifies the other person to nothing. Like, just because I thought Amanda Nunes had the advantage on the stand-up, it didn't mean Pena is just, like, throwing around noodle arms, like, doesn't know how to fight anymore. Like, the, the other fighter still is extremely talented. It's just an area where they are behind in. So, for Pena, the pressure ended up working. I thought she would run her way into a knockout, but the pressure ends up working and she gets the, the win. I, I still think the biggest UFC upset in the history of the sport was Matt Serra with the victory over George St. Pierre. Like that, that was just, that was inconceivable at the time. And the more you look into it, the more it's like, what the hell happened there? As time goes on, uh, I think a little bit of the bloom comes off of the, the upset that was home against Rousey. I think we've, I think we've already forgotten how dominant Ronda Rousey was and how just unbeatable she felt and how just, oh, Holmes going to come in, Rousey's going to get the takedown, she's going to put the armbar on, and that's going to be that. Like, it, it just, how inevitable that whole thing felt, and now I, I think there's too much revisionist history going on with Ronda Rousey, where, oh, she couldn't fight, she couldn't stand up, she had a one-trick pony. Like, no, 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 no. This is the, one of the most dominant fighters in the history of the sport at her time, it's just, it flamed out very quickly. So I would put this one ahead of that. I, I think this is the second biggest upset in UFC history. So now, for Nunez. She was a two-division champion and defending both belts. No one has really ever done that before. It's always been, let's get rid of this one title and then go fight at this other weight class. But normally, it was, let's get rid of the lower weight class belt and defend the higher weight class, whether it be whoever, right? Um, Conor McGregor would be the, the most notable one in that aspect. But for Amanda Nunes, the biggest fights... And the biggest money fights were always at 135 pounds. And 145 was a division made for Cyborg. And now there's just not a whole lot there. But for Nunez now, the best fights are still at 135 pounds. And the biggest and I think most important fights are still at 135 pounds. But I do wonder if that weight cut had something to do with it. Like she just, when she stepped on the scale for 135 pounds, this was the first time she did that since a fight against Durandamy back in 2019. And it just looked, it looked a little bit, oh, okay, there's less of her here than I expect. And so I just, I wonder if that has something to do with her maybe falling off. And don't, I, I do not want to take anything away from Juliana Pena, but I just wonder if there was, if there's something to bouncing between 135 and 145 and then getting comfortable at 145 with a couple of fights and then having to go back down to 135. I just wonder if that's too much on the body. I think 145 might be the best spot for her, but then when you look at the matches to make, 
there's not a whole lot of intriguing ones. I don't even know if the UFC even does rankings right now for 145 pounds. So a disappointing end for Amanda Nunes as uh, still the, the greatest women's fighter of all time, but a, a step back and apparently the, the loss of a big money fight as she was going to fight Kayla Harrison next. We'll see what ends up happening with the, uh, the, the free agent women's star coming into the octagon. One last thing before we go. I know I said we were done with the NFL stuff, but we're back on the NFL to close things out. Fantasy football can be incredibly frustrating, and it's it's always difficult to predict them, and so that made doing a fantasy football show all the more difficult. And so, uh, if you've noticed, I have stayed away from that a little bit and just focused on my own team, and looks like I'm at least in the playoffs in four out of the six leagues that I'm in. We'll see about a fifth one with how the Monday Nighter goes tonight, but to show how unpredictable fantasy football can be. I have compiled bad fantasy football team that might have beat your team this week. I am looking at players that are under 25% owned that lit it up on Sunday. Our starting quarterback for this bad fantasy football team is Ben Roethlisberger, 22% owned. I've talked about how I'm not a fan of Big Ben. Comes away with a big fantasy football performance on Thursday night against the Minnesota Vikings. And he has 25.82 points. Rashad Penny, 21% owned for Seattle. He gets the boost because there's injuries at the running back position for the Seahawks, but still widely available, 25.8 points. The other running back, Derek Gore for Kansas City, 1% owned, 14.9 points. You have Jakeen Grant for Chicago, 1% owned, 17.1 points. Alan Lazard, 4% owned, 14.9 points. In our flex spot, we have Jalen Guyton, 15% owned, 14.70%. And just because everyone plays with kickers and defense, Cairo Santos, 2% owned, 14 points. Atlanta, 4% owned, 13 points. So we stack this team together. Ben Roethlisberger, Rashad Penny, Derek Gore, Jakeen Grant, Alan Lazard, and Jalen Guyton, plus name your kicker and defense here. And they come away with 140 points. Fantasy football is incredibly frustrating all the time. That's going to do it for the show today. Thank you all so much for listening. This has been Couch Potato Diary from the Clearwater Cleaning Solutions broadcast studio. If you sign up with Clearwater Cleaning Solutions to become a regular residential client or a commercial client, we offer a 10% discount on your first month. If you have any thoughts on the show, you can send them my way on social media, Twitter, Instagram. I am at primetimecline, twitch.tv slash primetimepk, and you can email the show couchpotatodiary at yahoo.com. A couple more shows to come this week. I will talk to you all later. I'm out.